Last year, I got caught up in a really fascinating uh, discussion with some far-flung friends. It was a multi-way, three-continent conversation with a bunch of leaders that were concerned. Um, they were particularly concerned about how people, wherever they live, people seem to be adrift all around them. The group was especially examining, it began because we began to talk about the problem of downward mobility, especially among younger generations. And we found ourselves honing in on what seems to be the biggest problem, uh, hopelessness. The biggest issue seems to be hopelessness. Look, here's how one lady put it. Uh, a lady wrote, she said, even surrounded by plenty of opportunity, people check out because they're hopeless leading to repeated cycles of downward mobility. And thus, she's not from America. She said, thus, your opioid crisis in America was actually a, a hope crisis. Another friend shared this fascinating insight. He said, this is really good. The hopelessness of mankind isn't new. However, in the modern era, hopelessness was falsely kept at bay by a worshipful belief in human ability. <clears throat> People could solve everything. No God needed, thank you. That has been stripped away in the 21st century where tribalism and demanded obedience have eroded faith in humanity. Now, he said, there's nothing left to rely on. <clears throat> Close quote. Here's the final note. Wrapped up our conversation, the moderator of this group wrote this. He said, we all seem to agree that people are especially feeling fearful and disenfranchised because they have no hope. In his later years, uh, Daniel the Hebrew felt that kind of fear. He truly was disenfranchised. He was relegated from ruling an empire to a persecuted status. Living in amazing wealth, Daniel nonetheless understood the fear of downward mobility, not just for himself but for all of his Hebrew brethren. But Daniel didn't check out the concern that my friends had around the world. Daniel didn't withdraw. Instead, he was drawn further in. He was drawn more deeply into God and his word, and that changed everything changed everything for Daniel and for all of us who are following him. What specifically happened was Daniel was granted a type of prophecy that is rarely given, something we now call apocalyptic literature. Look up here at the screen if you would. Let's get a, let's get a handle on the big picture flow of Daniel's book, okay? The biggest break in the book is between chapters 6 and 7. Chapters 1 through 6 are stories. They're the ones that you learn in second grade Sunday school, and, and they're wonderful, and they're written in prose. Chapters 7 through 12 are written in a poetic kind of prophecy writing instead. It's not in story mode. It's not prose. And these are visions. Now, there's, there's another layer that we need to hang on to, and, and that is about topic and language. When you look at topic and language, Daniel is actually shown in three divisions. Look, here's how it breaks down. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 is the introduction of the book. It's written in Hebrew. But then in chapter 2, the text shifts to Aramaic. And chapters 2 through 7 cover something called the times of the Gentiles. Uh, we'll describe that more in a moment, but it's a time of Gentile power. That's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the main Gentile language in the Mediterranean era, uh, area where, where Daniel lived. So it switches to a Gentile language talking about the times of the Gentiles. But then in chapter 8, it shifts back to Hebrew again. It's the only book in the Bible that, that has a big section like that in a different language. Switches back to Hebrew, and that's describing Israel now. But it's how Israel relates to the Gentiles. By the way, I put that simple chart in your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll, you'll see that simple chart. Now, what I didn't have room to list for you was one final piece of analysis about Daniel. There's a great connection point in the story. Get this. 
Chapter 2 from the story part and chapter 7 from the vision part are each describing the same thing, a big overview of the times of the Gentiles. Now, when you see something obviously repeated in such a short book, you need to look for contrasts. All right, so here's a few. In chapter 2, it's told in story form. Chapter 7, of course, is in prophecy form. Chapter 2 is a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the, the pagan king, emperor of Babylon. Chapter 7 is given to Daniel, God's prophet. Chapter 2 is, is a picture of world history. But get this, it's world history in the form of a man. He is awesome, and it's a human form, golden head, all that kind of stuff. Chapter 7 is, is the history of, of world history, but it's in the form of, a, of beasts, okay? Very different. Chapter 2 is interpreted by Daniel. He interprets Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 7, Daniel can't interpret. The angel interprets for him. Here's the big deal. Chapter 2 is history, world history, from a human perspective. And from a human point of view, it looks glorious and imposing. But chapter 7 is giving us world history from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, we see that human history is actually immoral and brutal. It is brutal. Chapter 2 has very little detail. Chapter 7 has much detail. And that detail is where we start today. We're diving into chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, here's what happens. Daniel is grabbed by the scruff of his neck, and he is forced to witness these terrifying images that, that show the future. Now, we're going to see that by the end of his writing, that experience changed Daniel. It, it seems counterintuitive, okay? And it, and it took a while. But this frightening set of visions removed Daniel's fear. Do you know what it did? Instead of checking out, these visions actually deepened Daniel's productivity in, in the here and his faith in the hereafter. It's, it's fascinating to see how he became so much more engaged because of these terrifying pictures. Now, of course, that makes us all wonder in our uh, William Shatner imitations, why would seeing scary glimpses of the future steady a person? Great question. Thank you, Captain Kirk, for asking. Uh, a New Jersey pastor named Ryan Boys gives a beautiful answer. Recent article, I just want to read you part of Ryan Boys. This is uh, what this pastor from New Jersey wrote. Biblical apocalyptic works, like what we're going to read today, they were addressed to disenfranchised people, those who had lost confidence in any greater plan or story. Daniel received visions for the benefit of Israelite exiles living in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. Many people today have adopted a similar mindset as those first readers of biblical apocalyptic visions, which is what my friends were talking about in that, in that leadership conversation we had. He goes on. They have come, people today have come to doubt there is a larger unified story that gives meaning to their lives. American Christians haven't watched their temple literally burn, as did the Jews. By the way, I should add here, I know that there are many, many of you who study with us in China, and it is an honor to study with you, and we do realize that you have seen your churches burn. Uh, but just back to Pastor Roy's as he's talking from an American perspective. Uh, American Christians haven't watched their temple burn, but they have seen trusted spiritual authorities flame out through moral failures. While mounting cynicism slowly snuffs out their confidence in religious institutions, people have been failed by churches, by politicians, by courts, by family and friends. They've seen that career success, wealth, and technology cannot provide meaning. Enter the apocalyptic visions of the Bible, written to foster faith in God and His story. How can apocalyptic visions, thousands of years old, be relevant to people's ongoing existential crisis today? By looking forward to God's judgment of the wicked, and his ultimate resolution of the problem of evil? 
the vindication of believers and their faith in Jesus, the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Each of these themes will resonate in our culture for years to come. All God's people said, he's right. So let's dive in. Open your Bible. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel is right after Ezekiel in your Old Testament, just before Hosea and Joel. Daniel 7, let's read verse 1. Daniel 7, 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Uh, as we headline in your notes, uh, the, the setting in verses 1 through 3, the setting is really important. Daniel is serving the crown prince slash regent of Babylon when this vision comes. Now, at this point, Daniel is old, and it's instructive to take a quick glance over his life journey. Daniel's career is a remarkable illustration of God's sovereignty where evil things, evil things get used for good. Just, just look at what Daniel has gone through in his life up to this point, and he's in his 80s here. He's taken from his family as a prepubescent boy. That's traumatic. His country destroyed. His religion circumvented. He was forcibly relocated and made to serve the conquerors of his country, and he was very, very likely turned into a eunuch. He faced death repeatedly in the king's service, and he was, he was caught up in political correctness traps again and again and again. And yet, as Daniel 1 through 6 shows, Daniel prospered. Again and again, he trusted God alone even when he was faced with certain death. And again and again, God used Daniel to show that his power and his plan supersede all human politics. The first year of Belshazzar, that tells us that this is near the end of the Babylonian Empire. We know when this falls. No one knew it then, of course. I mean, it was assumed, everybody there at that time assumed that Babylon, wealthy Babylon, was just going to keep expanding and growing. But here's what happened. These wild people, these mountain Medes up here, they got together with these people, the Persians down here, and they formed a remarkable coalition empire that ended up overthrowing Babylon and changing the world. With that in mind, read verses 2 and 3. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The phrase, the four winds of heaven, is a clever way to state that all this is occurring by divine decree. Listen, listen carefully. It's a big part of apocalyptic literature. The images, the symbols, always have a meaning that is understood by the original audience. The original audience always understood what was being said. Now, this one's not hard for us to grasp because... Sailors today still talk about the four winds, you know, the, the breezes that come from the four points of the compass. But look at your text. By calling them the four winds of what, everybody? Was it four winds of heaven? The text is emphasizing that there is nothing going on that isn't directly under the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, the great sea is a little further from our mindset. Um, it doesn't just mean the Mediterranean, although, although people in the ancient Near East, they referred to the Med as the great sea. But, but in this use, great sea is more. You see, we don't use it this way, but in the Hebrew mind, the sea is a picture of the Gentile nations. The sea is regularly used in Scripture as a, as a poetic way to describe the surrounding and overwhelming nature of the Gentiles. Daniel has shown that, that from the Mediterranean basin, four great empires, Gentile empires, are going to arise. Each of them is going to be different. Each is beastly. And each is going to reign over Israel. That's the time of the Gentiles. The four beasts are detailed in verses 4 through 8. Let's read them. 4 through 8. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. 
I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with, with four wings of a bird on its back. Actually, the word that's translated bird there can be translated fowl or, or, or duck or waterfowl. Um, it had four heads and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong. With large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn, there were eyes, like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Whew. On the right side of the notes, we have some space for you to write your thoughts. We've found that often helps people learn. We start with the lionish beast. The lionish beast is the Neo-Babylonian empire of Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, the empire that Daniel's in right now. The winged lion is a big part of Babylonian imagery, and so it's pretty simple to know, even very, very liberal scholars agree, this must be the Babylonian empire. By the way, uh, the Babylonians didn't start the winged lion. Uh, the, the Assyrians, who, who ruled the Mediterranean for 300 years before Babylon arose, the Assyrians used um, a winged lion often, especially in magic charms like this one. But Nebuchadnezzar's artists took the winged lion to whole new heights. It became the main image of Babylon, and, and they became very, very famous for it. Uh, they, they, they put them all over palaces and walls, and, and over time... It morphed into what's called a lamasu. That's your fancy word for today, boys and girls. On the count of three, you have to say lamasu. One, two, three. Lamasu is a winged lion that has a human face. Uh, these are two very famous ones. You can see them at the uh, Berlin Museum. Uh, these were the two lamasu that uh, guarded Nebuchadnezzar's throne room. Okay? That's, that's what happened to these fantastic beasts. That's really important to keep in mind given how the prophecy unfolds in chapter 7, verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. It was lifted up from the ground, set on his feet like a man, and given a human mind. Now, this is, this is a really clever wordplay that very likely refers to chapter 4 of Daniel. It's got two pictures in mind. One is the lamasu, the human face. The other is back in chapter 4 of Daniel. You see, in Daniel chapter 4, the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. He was removed from power because of bestial insanity. This guy lived as a wild beast for years, and yet God moved his heart and mind, turning Nebuchadnezzar sane. When the emperor returned, when he turned to God in his sanity, he was restored to power. That's probably the reference in chapter 7, verse 4. Now, I should say there are some scholars who think that's not what's going on. They would say that the point is that Babylon was more humane than the Assyrians that they overthrew. They were nicer, and... And that could be, but regardless, that empire didn't last. It was replaced by the bear-like one. Second beast describes Medo-Persia, which had not yet arisen when God gave Daniel this vision. By the way, there are liberal scholars who disagree. They say that the second one is not uh, Medo-Persia, that uh, th this is the Medo-Persian empire. They say that it's not, but the only reason I can find as I try to fairly read their writings, the only reason I can find is that they hate the idea of predictive prophecy. The scripture can describe something that hasn't happened yet and is going to happen. These poor fools can't stand the thought of a God who knows more than they. 
Thank goodness we're not like that. Anyway, um, but I know the real question that you're asking. The real question you're asking in your uh, Pavel Chekhov imitation is, but why a beer? Why a beer? Uh, great question. Thank you, Mr. Chekhov. The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I cannot find any representative meaning for bears in any other literature of the time. Um, there, you'll find some fanciful ideas in modern commentaries, but they're really a stretch. Look, remember, when an image is used in apocalyptic literature, it always has a clear meaning to the audience. But sometimes it's just the meaning of the thing itself. It's just a simple image itself. It doesn't have to stand for something else. For example, when one talks about the Bears in Waco, Texas, everybody normally pictures the Baylor sports teams, right? The, because they're the Baylor Bears. But my last year living in Waco, that's not what the Bears meant to me. I lived with and helped train and cared for three live Bears, our university mascots. To me, when somebody said the Bears, it was a very literal term. It seems the same is true in verse 5. Media joined with Persia to create this bear-like empire that overtook a larger swath of the Mediterranean world than anyone had ever thought was possible before. And raised up on one side. You see that comment? That's very bearish. Uh, look up here. The Aramaic, kufavmim. Kufavmim is what we translate, it was raised up. Kufavmim literally means raised from a lower to a higher position. And in this case, the bear only uses one side to raise itself from a lower to a higher position. When I was a college senior, uh, our, our massive uh, bear, the biggest of our bear cubs, was Judge. He was the largest North American black bear in captivity. He weighed 611 pounds, um, <clears throat> give or take, depending on how hungry he was that day. Uh, Judge was very mischievous and very big, and one day, somebody this had never happened before, left two different gates open in the bear pit. And I looked up because I saw, I was working on with the other cubs, and I looked up and I saw a judge wandering toward the exit of the bear pit. And, and I, I screamed, and the guys couldn't get to the gate in time because judge just hit the latch and threw the gate open. And I yelled it down. Judge was my buddy. We swam together every day, okay? We spent a lot of time together. And I yelled at judge, and I said, judge, stop! And he turned, and he looked at me, and he shook his 611 pounds, and he laughed. He just laughed. Oh, just did that. Like, there's no way, sucker. And he was gone. <laughs> I followed him across the street toward the student union building at Baylor, and he went right by where the ATM was. And I could tell where he was because there were students fleeing wisely <laughs> from the whole area. And Judge got next to that ATM, and he turned to look at me, and he stuck his paw up. The roof, was about, the, the roof of the student union at that point is about 10 feet high. And he stuck his paw up there. He was very tall. And he put his paw up, and folks, only, only half of his gigantic paw was actually on the roof. And he turned and looked at me, and he grunted. He went, Ugh, and he lifted his entire body up. 600 pounds, with half of his right, just like that, and he was on the roof. It was the most magnificent feat of strength I have ever seen in my life. I still, I still get chills thinking about how powerful that was. That's what bears can do, all right? It's just a very clear image. By the way, it was a mistake for Judge to get up there because then he got scared, he was trapped, and I was able to catch him. So Daniel, 
Daniel is predicting that Cyrus the Great's empire is going to conquer the world, and it's going to do it only using half its strength. And that's exactly what happened. The Persian side took over and did all of the conquering. Actually, they ended up kind of subjecting the Medes underneath them. And I do mean conquer. They ate those three ribs. The first country that they conquered was the wealthiest country in the world, which was the Neo-Babylonian Empire, where, where Daniel was living and working. Secondly, they conquered Lydia, which was the second wealthiest empire in the world. And, and, and I don't have time to go into it. Their wealth was amazing. And then thirdly, they conquered Egypt. Those were the three things that Cyrus conquered. Of course, the, the Persians won't last. Eventually, they're going to fall to the leopard duck, right? All right, verse 6. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. The word for bird there, again, indicates waterfowl, so I call this duck-duck leopard. Um, it's all about speed. No kingdom ever in history grew faster than Alexander the Great's Hellenist one. Those Macedonians, they spread Greek thought and language throughout the world in one generation, leaving a legacy that lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. The, the foul wings on the back seem to apply that, that this advance is going to go faster than one can imagine, as if a leopard, which is already super fast with its four feet, as if she also had four wings on the back. By the way, there's no other, it's like the bear, there's no other reference in apocalyptic literature to leopards or ducks, so, so the point seems to be speed. It doesn't stand for anything else than speed. By the way, what about the four heads? Well, after Alexander died, his generals warred over his empire. Eventually, these four won out. This is the prophecy of the four heads. Uh, Lysimachus ruled Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander reigned over the homeland of Macedonia and of Greece. Seleucus had the very wealthy area of Syria, Babylonia, and the remnants of the Persian Empire as far away as India off the map there. And Ptolemy controlled Egypt and Arabia and, for a time, Israel. Finally, that Hellenic world was overrun by the fourth beast, the Thanos-esque one. Okay, it, it wasn't Thanos, it was really Rome. But listen, if you want to understand Rome from a classical Israeli perspective, think of the Marvel anti-hero known as Thanos. What do you know about Thanos? If you, how many of you ever read about, or saw the movies? You saw any of the Marvel movies? Okay, Thanos is cruel, right? His power dwarfs anything that has ever gone before, right? However, it's interesting. He actually believes in peace and prosperity. He really does. But only if they are under his terms, under his authority, right? That's Rome. That's Rome. Rome grew slowly. Rome grew inexorably. It declined even more slowly. The Pax Romana, the, the peace brought by Rome, was real. There really was true benefit for the people of the Mediterranean era. But it wasn't freedom, not of the sort we imagine. Everyone was under the authority and the rule. Everyone was under the boot of Rome. Now, of course, at this point, I know you're all wanting me to get to what matters, and you're exasperated uh, Dr. McCoy voices. You're saying, Jim, I'm a, I'm a doctor, not a theologian. What are the horns, Jim? Great question. Thank you for asking, Bones. I'll answer in a minute. Or rather, God's angel will. First, look at this. This is so cool. First, our text puts a little interruption here because God is revealed in the midst of all this. Go to verse 9. Verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. 
Okay, before we get into the revelation of God here, I want you to just pause at the very first clause in verse 9. As I kept watching. You may have caught it. This is an idea Daniel relates many, many times. In fact, this is one of two different words for watching that are employed in this chapter. Daniel kept watching. He kept learning. In different ways, he stayed glued to God's Word, God's plan, the, the working of the past and the present and the future. Daniel was up on all the events and the themes going on all around him. What a learner! And remember, he is old. Remember the context? This is in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. That means Daniel is well over 80 years old. This guy has literally ruled the world. He has, he has done and seen everything, right? If, if anybody could be excused for stopping learning, it would be this guy. And on top of that, he's God's prophet. He's, he's got direct access to God's Word. And yet, look what he does. Daniel keeps studying prophecy. He keeps watching. You'll see it again and again in this text. I kept watching. Is that what we do? Let's do this. Think about something about which you feel pretty confident, something that you do well, okay? Everybody, right now, think of, you're all so talented. You have so many incredible capacities. Just think of one, something you do well, okay? You got it? You got your thing? Okay, now, thinking about that one thing, ask yourself this. Am I continuing to grow in that? Am I still keeping watch? Am I continuing to learn from God, or do I think that, or do I think that I've arrived? Because, folks, if you stop watching, if you stop learning and growing, you could miss the most important things. I mean, look at Daniel. This is by far, all that he's seen in his life, this is the best thing he's ever seen. If Daniel had decided that he knew it all before verse 9, he would have missed God revealed as the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days. It's one of the greatest names ever penned. What a magnificent way to say venerable beyond counting. God's, God's in a chariot or a wheelchair or some kind of throne with wheels. Um, it may be a device similar to what Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel tried to describe God's working this way. He said it's like wheels within wheels, just beyond our comprehension, things moving and happening. God's Shekinah glory is overwhelming here. By the way, fire always symbolizes purification in apocalyptic literature, and, and the Father is the source of all purity. He rules with all these who serve with him, uh, 100 million of them. And as ruler, God is revealed as the sovereign judge of the beasts. Look, look at verses 11 and 12. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. Now, the opening of books was and often still is back in verse 10 that, that is a picture of fair justice okay um, we, we still use this image today um, when you have somebody like your your dad um, who's a judge when you have, when you have a, a judge who's a very thorough judge that really sticks to the rule of law uh, and they hand down a, a fair hard sentence what do we say we say that judge really did what threw the book at you, right? That's, that's the phrase we still use to this day. The Roman Empire and its heirs are going to have the book thrown at them. They will finally be eliminated, ending the times of the Gentiles. But the cultures of Greece and Persia and Iraq will continue to live beyond the fall of Rome. By that time, God will be revealed not just as the Ancient of Days, but also as the Son of Man. Look at verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Will not be destroyed. Wow, what a scene. The triumphant Son of God appears before the Ancient of Days. Now notice, this one's not angelic. He is like a son of man. That means he's human, and yet he also has to be divine. If he's not divine, he cannot go into the very presence of, of the Ancient of Days, of God Almighty. The the purification, the fire would absolutely destroy him in his purity. He has to be divine because no one else could survive. By the way, his character we know is divine because it says he approaches with the clouds of what, everybody? The clouds of what? Of heaven. That means he, just like the Ancient of Days, just like God the Father, he controls the heavenly dimension. Now, reading this, now we begin to understand why Jesus' favorite name for himself was what it was. Do you know what Jesus called himself more often than anything else? He took it from Daniel. Yeah, son of man. He said, the son of man. That's what he called himself. He was letting you know he is human and he is divine. And his kingdom will be eternal. All are going to serve him in a perfect kingdom. Rome and Persia and China and Russia and the USA have all tried at different times to imitate part of God's earthly dominion that is to come. But their command and control is always and inevitably warped by human sin. They demand service instead of commanding it. Their multiculturalism has no rally point, no savior. Thus, they all lack permanence. The Son of Man does not. All God's people said? Okay, so let's consider what we have so far. We've got four terrifying beasts that that represent the times of the Gentiles, and that's contrasted with God. God's perfect holy kingdom is the true hope. Our true hope is always only in God's kingdom, not ever in any earthly kingdom. All God's people said? Now, that's a cool lesson in itself, right? I mean, that's awesome right there. But, as Mr. Sulu says, but wait, there is more, right? The beasts are explained to Daniel in the last section. Let's learn about the beasts. Verse 15, verse 15. Uh, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. These huge beasts, four in number, this is the angel speaking, are four kings who will rise from the earth. We're going to stop there. Understandably, Daniel is freaked out. Who wouldn't be? Okay, imagine you're a sailor, okay, and you're taking the, the little pilot boat out to your sailboat out in, in uh, a harbor. Let's say you're in Seattle, that beautiful, that beautiful harbor there. And as you round the corner and you look ahead, you see this at your sailboat, right? There are two massive sea lions. These grotesque animals have crawled up and are sinking and pooping on your boat, right? Ugh! Now, that gross image occurred to me because Daniel's actually a sailor of sort. He's a sailing master. He has sailed the ship of state through the waters of world geopolitics perfectly for a long time. And now he's told these horrible beasts are going to rise up and ruin everything. So Dan walks up to one of the angelic watchers here, and he asks for a clarification. What he does is he throws the red challenge flag, right? And he says, I'd like a review. I, that, that doesn't seem right to me. And they go back to the booth, and then the angel comes back, and the angel says, the call stands. It is confirmed. This is what's going to happen. The four massive empires will come. They will dominate. In fact, through Rome's offspring, they're going to dominate the world for thousands of years. And yet... The saints of God are promised kingdom life. 
Verse 18. Look at verse 18. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. No matter how bad the game gets, you are guaranteed the victory if you are one of God's holy ones. The times of the Gentiles are going to dominate the land of Israel for long eras. And yet in the end, those who are made holy by God will possess his kingdom. How long does it say that God's people get to be a part of the Son of Man's kingdom? How long, everybody? How long is that? Yes, and forever. Then, finally now, in response to Dr. McCoy's excellent question, the fourth beast is revealed further. Go to verse 19, 19 through 25. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, trampling with his feet, whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth that spoke arrogantly and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones and the Most High for the time had come, and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will arise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Let's stop there. Now, the description of the fourth kingdom continues. I said I wanted to stop there because you seem upset. All right? This seemed to, I, I just want you to be comforted. The, the shrieking eels... Don't get the princess at this time, okay? Yeah, seriously, the plans of the Most High cannot and will not be thwarted. Look at what you just read. Here's what, here's what this text exposed for us. The final iteration of the Roman Reich will be exceedingly arrogant. Rome's power over the Mediterranean world is going to rise again in ten rulers. You can, by the way, see more about that in Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. Then another one's going to come and conquer three of the ten. That ruler is going to fight against God's people. He's going to work to establish a new religion. That's what it means with the set new festivals. He's going to, he's going to work to establish a new religion, and he's going to hold power over over all people for three and a half years. That's what time, times, and half a time means. It's, it's three and a half years. You can learn more about that in Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. His reign will be ended by God's direct intervention. And the saints, the holy ones, saints just means people made holy by God, will be vindicated and they will rule with God. All God's people said? By the way, that does not mean, as a number of people were wanting to tell me after the first service, that the New Orleans Saints will win their game today. That is not what that necessarily means. But that will all occur just as surely as Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome arose when Daniel prophesied about that before they ever happened. This is all going to happen as well. And it gets further treatment later in Daniel's visions, and we'll talk about all of it in the coming days. No doubt, of course... All that makes you wonder in your skeptical uh, Spock voice, Captain, what does any of this have to do with our mission to live long and prosper? Great question, Mr. Spock. Thank you. My old teacher, John Walvoord, has a great answer. Look, Dr. Walvoord says this. This is a genuine prophetic revelation of God's program for human history. In a modern world, 
where attention is again being riveted upon the Middle East and Israel's once again back in the land, these items become of more than academic interest because they are key to the present movement of history in anticipation of that which lies ahead. Close quote. Okay, now let's get back to the angel's interrupted speech, verses 26 and 27. But, for, uh, but the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom, the Most High, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. The saint's inheritance is detailed here. The evil ruler is going to have everything stripped away. He'll be eliminated. The kingdom of God will be established on earth, administered and enjoyed by those he has made holy. How is that for a promise? And that promise, by the way, is why we named this series Beacons of Hope. Ken Bergstad of our curriculum team came up with the idea. Um, he was looking through all my notes for this series, and, and he, uh, he wrote me this a few weeks ago. He said, Wayne, I think Beacons of Hope would make an excellent title to the series. Not only is it appropriate for the eschatological future, okay, that's, a fan, that's your second fancy word for the day, okay? Eschatology means the, the study of prophecy about the future, the study of God's word about the future. You get to say eschatological on the count of three. It's a very nice, fun word to say. It's kind of like kinkajou. It's really fun to say. Okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, eschatological. Not only is it appropriate for the eschatological future, but also as our, as our stones are turned in following God, we become reflective beacons of hope. Amen. Very, very true. Interestingly, that positivity is not immediately present in Daniel's response. Daniel will get there, but the end of chapter 7 actually closes darkly. Look, look at verse 28, the last verse of our chapter. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Face turned pale literally says in the Aramaic, turned pale inside me. Uh, it doesn't say anything about face. It says, it says uh, turned pale against me would be another way to translate it. It's actually an internal phrase. It comes very poorly into English uh, because in English we think of paleness as an external issue. But this is about internal turmoil. Daniel's stewing. He's upset inside. Why? I mean, this is not the confidence we saw from this guy when he was a youth. Why is God's prophet, after a lifetime of miraculous blessing upon blessing, why is Daniel so frightened by this prophecy? We don't know for certain, but we do know he stewed on it. Of course, Scotty is wondering, great question, Scotty's wondering, hey, did Daniel let this shape him in the wrong way? Great question, thank you, Mr. Scott. No. Daniel's terrified, tumultuous reaction doesn't throw him off his groove. Look, just a few years after this, we're going to find Daniel faithfully serving God. He is, a, he is effectively leading the Medo-Persians after they take over the Babylonian Empire. We're going to see Daniel, by the end of his book, very encouraged. He ends up just fine. But right now in chapter 7, Daniel is really upset. Here's my best guess at why I think so. I think Daniel here has been cursed with the ability to see some of the depth of wickedness. And that has turned him pale inside. Last month, I got a call from an ER doctor, a friend of mine in another state, and he just needed to talk to somebody. He had, his ER, um, which he runs very, very well, his ER had just had two children die in the same day, very rare thing for them, and each of the children died because of family abuse. And he was hurting. This guy knows the end of the story, just like Daniel does, just like you do. He knows how it all ends well. But at that moment, 
he was in turmoil. He was understandably pale inside. Daniel could see that this little horn was something horrible, terrifying, earth-shattering. In fact, that little horn is what Scripture will later call the Antichrist. We're going to discuss that in depth next time. Next time we're going to talk about the Antichrist, a bunch of scriptures that describe this creepy leader. But just so you don't stay with Daniel in the darkness at the end of chapter 7, let's close with a later word that came to Daniel. Chapter 10, verse 19, God speaks, or the angel speaks to Daniel, and you read the underlying text with me. He said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God, peace to you, be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and now Daniel's going to speak, and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Don't be pale inside. You are treasured by God. You, you have God's very word. Let it speak. Amen? In the late 20th century, a, um, a guy named Rick Roberts wrote a poem that I think captures this whole idea of of the end of Daniel really well in, in modern terms. Here's what Rick wrote. He said, when it all goes crazy and the thrill is gone, the days get rainy and the nights get long, when you get that feeling you were born to lose, staring at your ceiling thinking of your blues, when there's so much trouble you want to cry, the world has crumbled and, and you don't know why. When your hopes are fading and, and they can't be found, dreams have left you waiting, friends have let you down, just remember, Rick wrote, I love you and it'll be all right. Just remember, I love you more than I can say. Maybe then your blues will fade away. Don't get scared and stew inside. Listen to the good news of God's love for you. He loves you more than can be expressed. And by the way, that captures my whole objective for this series. The objective is that we are strengthened and we are at peace because we know the rest of the story. Let's pray about that. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ that we will that we will rest in the truth that you are sovereign and you're doing things we wouldn't believe if we were told. And Father, I pray for anybody studying with us who is not a believer in Jesus, who is not a saint. And I beg you, Lord, that you will draw them to you right now. Listen, friend, listen. You are not holy. You're not one of God's holy ones in your own self. You are sinful, just like all the rest of us. That horrible depravity we talked about that, that overwhelmed the ER doc, that's inside all of us too. It's not just somewhere else. And God's holy, so you're separated from him. But God loves you so much that that son of man, fully human, fully divine, he came and died for you. That's why he's before the ancient days. He's presenting the sacrifice of himself. He died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you could follow him in everlasting life. The inheritance of the saints are yours, but you have to trust Jesus. Do so right now. Believe on Jesus. If you're studying with us somewhere else and you trusted Jesus today, please write us. We love getting those notes. You can email us. You can find it through the website. If you're here today and you trusted Christ this morning, raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good job. Amen. Father, we pray for all these believers, new and old, and we thank you for the chance to worship, even through the offering we're about to take. In Jesus' name, amen.